Welcome to the Civil Service World podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Susanna. And each week we'll be exploring an issue that matters to civil servants in their professional lives. This week we're talking about trust in official statistics. So we sent Susanna off to the first annual conference of the Office for Statistics Regulation. Tell us about your day, Suze. It was a very interesting day, Jess. The Office for Statistics Regulation is the body that is in charge of both building public confidence in official statistics, but also watching out for when a politician or a department or someone in a prominent public role misuses statistics. So they're the ones who write to politicians when they put a wrong figure on the side of their campaign bus or to departments when they have a statistical release which is a bit misleading. At the end of the day, I sat down with Ed Humpherson, who's their Director General for Regulation, and with Deborah Ashby, who is a prominent medical statistician and president of the Royal Statistical Society, and with Baroness Honora O'Neill. And she is a philosopher, but she was there at the conference specifically because she's done a lot of work on trust and trustworthiness. Right, great. Some of our listeners might have heard of Ed because he is the man who writes to their perm sex when they get things wrong. So I began by asking Ed about that particular part of his role and whether it makes him a pariah at perm sex parties. <laughs> I dream of being invited to such lofty events as those. No, it, it, it really it does not make me persona non grata. I mean, obviously, when we make an intervention about the use of statistics or the production of statistics, there can be you know, a direct conversation that we have with them and they don't always agree. But what's entirely clear from all of my engagements with with any permanent secretary is that they understand that we are part of the system which helps the civil service meet the highest standards of impartiality that it aspires to. So tell us a little more about OSR's role in that system. Who are you and what do you do? So we exist to ensure that statistics produced by government serve the public good. And we do that by setting the standards that they must meet through a code of practice for statistics. It's got three key pillars of trustworthiness, quality and value. And then we go out and we ensure that government departments comply with that. And just to give a sense of the extent of our work, we cover all four nations of the UK. So it's not just the UK government or the Westminster Whitehall set up. It's also Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. In fact, it's about 200 separate government bodies that are obliged to follow our code of practice and we work with all of them. So I know we've mentioned the letters that OSR writes. You have other ways of intervening through assessments of statistics and you make recommendations to departments on how they can improve their statistics. What levers, if any, do you have to actually make them follow your recommendations? So our primary lever is set out in our Act and that is that we confer the national statistics designation. It's kind of mark of confidence and we confer it on statistics that we assess as being fully compliant. So we recently, for example, confirmed the assessment of air quality statistics or of ONS's statistics on regional economic output. So that's what we do and it's kind of a truism that people really value getting that designation but they even more would hate to lose it. The threat of losing it is a very significant lever. So that's the, mo- the primary lever. But on top of that, we think there's a really powerful lever, which is our voice, the capacity to speak out when we have concerns. And at the conference we've just had, we heard a couple of examples of civil servants saying 
the leverage that a letter from me or from our chair, Sir David Norgrove, has within the department. And the third lever is is kind of an uh, you know a normative one in a sense. It's one about the values and the beliefs. And we really promote the good of statistics. We want departments to recognise that one of their core functions is to provide transparently to the public an account of what's going on in society and want them to kind of believe that's a worthwhile thing to do and that to infringe that would be something that they wouldn't wouldn't want to do it's kind of getting people to recognize that in providing good statistics they are doing fantastic work for democracy and the letters that we've spoken about are often around where someone has used statistics in a misleading way or a way that you deem to be misleading. That's not necessarily as clear-cut as the designation of an official statistics kite mark. So can you tell us a bit more about your thinking around what is misleading? So one of the most clear ways you can see misleading is actually is what we call a naked number. It's a number which goes out with no explanation, no source, no context. It's just used, it's like tossed away. That really, I think, treats the people who receive that information with not very much respect because it just expects them to kind of just take a number and, and, and take it at face value. It's not, to use some of the things we've heard about from Nora O'Neill's work, it's not accessible, it's not accessible. And there are lots of examples in our work where we have just called out naked numbers, things which have just been produced, uh, things on plastic straws, for example, but done by DEFRA or uh, done in the Scottish Parliament by uh, the First Minister talking about waiting times in Scottish hospitals, just numbers with no with no context. And we think that potential to mislead there is very significant. But of course, there'll be other situations where there are statistics published, so the source is clear, but what's happened is the statement being made which sits over the, over on top of those numbers, kind of misleads as to what they're actually saying. When we're talking about misleading use of statistics, I think a fundamental issue is the way statistics are communicated. So, Deborah, if I could ask you, is there work that the RSS is doing around improving the way that stats are communicated by the profession and also the way that non-statisticians understand how to communicate Absolutely. So if I can go back in history, the society's origins are nearly 200 years ago, very much intertwined with what was the General Registrar's Office, which was the forerunner of the Office of National Statistics. And early on, the motto of the Royal Statistics Society was actually alias extenderendum. My Latin may not be perfect, but it's interpreted for others to thresh. So what statisticians then saw their role was the collection of the data, but it wasn't up to them to interpret it, never mind communicate it. The world has moved on since then because actually statisticians now see their role as interpreting the data, putting the use to which it's been put in the context of the design. But perhaps we haven't been as good as we might be about then going out there publicly to communicate that. We tend to rely on the medics we work with, in my case, or the politicians. I think the Ross Society more recently has been building up communications, being more public. And that takes a number of forms. It's partly being prepared to respond to consultations and so on. We appointed a guy lecturer in statistics some years ago whose job it is to go around to schools to communicate. A more recent initiative is that we now have the Cisco Ambassadors Scheme, where statisticians, some are young, some are rather older, are selected, they, they apply for it, we select them and we give them training, confidence, so that when the media come to us, we've got an army of people prepared to do that. And actually one of the graduates of that scheme is Robert Cuff, who's now head of statistics at the BBC. So I think our culture is changing. 
We're also doing work with others. So we've done a lot of work with journalists who often have to use statistics at short notice to make them aware of how to critique it. And actually, we have a prize for statistics and journalism. We get some fabulous entries. We have a statistics of the year competition, which we then go on the radio and talk about the winners. So we're doing a number of things to try to communicate. What I do wonder is the extent to which we have plenty of people who are civil servants who are fellows of our society. What I'm not sure is whether they engage quite as much as they could do, because actually, as I'm talking, a lot of what we're doing more generally, I suspect, could be done by civil servants. And clearly there are sensitivities about what you go in front of and what you don't. But the idea that you find people who want to do that, you train them, brief them on what it's appropriate to say and what it's not, and then have them out there explaining how statistics is done, what the processes are, sometimes talking about particular examples to journalists, would do a lot to promote it and actually to put the face behind the numbers, which is often, it's it's not the only part of trust, but it, it does help when you think these are real people who actually passionately care. You mentioned that it's normally other people who are communicating statistics. Politicians, in the case of civil servants, are one of the main communicators of of official statistics. One of the speakers here today spoke about feeling kind of pummeled between a statistic profession requirement and the, the policy requirements of the department. That's obviously a big challenge in terms of the way that statistics are used. As the OSR, how engaged are you with people outside the statistics profession? How engaged are they with the work you're doing to improve use of statistics for public good? We engage quite widely, but I I just wanted to say one thing before talking about that, which is that we really see that when we make these interventions, what we're actually doing is within a government department, we are empowering the analytical voice. And if you think of government departments as being a federation of of roles, you have a policy function, you have a communications function, you have the ministerial function, you have a delivery function, you also have this analytical function. And there's always kind of a a balance to be struck between those. And I think some of the times when we see problems is when the analytical function is got a has got a slightly underpowered voice in respect of, of, of some of the others. And what we do is, painful though it may be in the short run, is that we're really empowering that analytical voice so that in future we won't need to intervene because they are standing up for themselves. And that's what we really think that we're doing. Kind of implicit in what I've said is that we have to be really aware of the dynamics within each department. So I engage very heavily with permanent secretaries, with directors general, and we also engage really extensively widely with users. One of the themes of today's event has been that if you think of the uses of statistics just being ministers within departments to communicate outwards their policy, in a sense, you wouldn't need professional statisticians or a code of practice. You just need communications people. What you really want is a kind of very full sense that statistics are used actively by decision makers of all kinds, citizens, businesses, charities, community groups. And we see very much our role of engaging with those users and ensuring their needs are met as well. Another issue, Deborah, with communicating statistics is how do we communicate uncertainty? Statistics can confer a sense of this is the truth, this is the numbers. Very rarely are they 100% certain. What's your thinking as a professional body around good ways to do that? The first thing is it's vital to communicate uncertainty. One of the things that always amuses me is a statistician means never having to say you're certain. And the question is how you convey that. So I think the first thing is to say this is just an estimate. There are some nice graphical techniques. We saw some today. David Spiegelhalter showed various 
graphs that convey that uncertainty. But one of the points he was making is that that needs testing with the audience. So something that I may think conveys uncertainty, we produce things plus or minus two standard errors, and that's in a scientific world, a standard way of doing it probably doesn't communicate to the public in the way it should. And so the development of methods that actually show that it is really important. It's also, those often just show the, if you like, technical statistical sampling error. Sometimes the data is not really fit for purpose and there's a much wider kind of uncertainty. Sometimes the extent where you actually shouldn't put out standard estimates at all. Other times you may need to say that under this set of assumptions, these are estimates, but if we actually think that this is the theory that's driving things, then maybe it's something different. So it depends on context, but absolutely one should, and it's really challenging to do it right. One thing I was really interested in in David's presentation today was his assertion that as we move towards using more administrative data Mm. to collect statistics, it won't be a question of the statistics are perhaps we haven't got a big enough base or we have, we've got um, variability. It's actually biases in the way the data is collected. Is the profession thinking about that and how to kind of communicate in that new world? Absolutely, because that plays into the whole big data debate where people assume that if there's a lot of data, that's somehow got the answers. And my flippant response is big data is just all the problems of small data writ large. There's a danger of thinking if you put some fancy algorithm into a data set, it's necessarily going to give you the right answers. Whereas actually all the statistical skills of saying, what's the question we're currently trying to answer? Why was that data collected for what purpose? And then how does that give us a bearing on what we want to know are really important? And it's just crit- you know, it's critical thinking in a fairly systematic way. Of course, it's right to use data collected for other purposes. It'd be daft not to, but just not to be naive about it. And one of the characteristics of an applied statistician, which is what I am, is we tend to know our subject area, but we tend to know how to ask questions as well. It's not that I know everything about every area of medicine, and I'm a medical statistician, but I do know how to ask to find out, to say, how is that data collected? What would you put down? What would you not? And that skill needs... Anybody playing with data should have that skill. And the longer you work in an area, the more you tend to be attuned to it. But actually making that explicit and transparent so that other people understand that as well is also important. So as we're starting to talk about the era of big data, digital-driven government, I'd like to bring in you, Onora, because you were speaking today about trustworthiness in a digital age. Communicating statistics in a digital age obviously brings new challenges. Government is thinking about how it can regulate the digital world through, for example, the online harms paper. What are your thoughts on how effective that regulation can be? I think the online harms white paper, which was issued in the spring this year by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, is very much focused on what one would call the private harms, that is to say the harms to individuals. And of course, people are quite rightly very worried about the private harms. We can think of anything from cyberbullying to extreme porn to good old fraud. Any of those raises questions and individuals get harmed by it. That's why we think of it as private harms. I'm personally much more interested in the public harms that may be done by the use of digital technologies to 
collect and process data. The public harms are cases where you can't really draw the causal line from a particular act to an individual who is harmed. But we know, or perhaps we just worry, but we have reason to worry, that harm is being done to public goods, for example, to culture, to serious media, or to democracy. So that's the area that I was looking at today. And I think that there is reason to be quite worried because it's very difficult to know how we're going to deal with this. That brings us to the area where statistics really intersects with this, which is around disinformation and disinformation campaigns. In the absence of effective regulation or any regulation really around this issue, is there anything that civil servants, public servants can be doing to counteract the problems of disinformation and public harm in the digital world? I think it's, it is quite difficult because the disinformation campaigns depend very much on the fact that the actual customers of the tech companies that commission and organise the disinformation are not social media users. They're not identifiable individuals. In fact, they are provided with a cloak of anonymity Hiding behind this cloak, they can commission advertisements that target other people in ways that will perhaps have considerable political influence. We've seen simple examples of this as early as 1916-17 in the Trump election campaign, in the referendum campaign. An example that I like because it's so simple from the Trump election campaign was what was called a voter deterrence campaign. And it was targeting black women who in the United States tend to vote Democrat And people were receiving messages that said, not really worth voting this time, is it? Not like when it was Obama, is it? Don't think I'm going to vote this time. You're going to vote? And they would agree they wouldn't vote. And black women turned out in much smaller numbers. Now, that is very, very difficult to control if you don't know who is commissioning it. And that's what I mean about the cloak of anonymity being provided to the actual customers of the tech companies, not the users of social media, but the customers who commission these targeted advertisements. And things have moved on quite a lot since 2016-17. And in fact, I think today we have a good deal of evidence that there are a lot of people in this space. There was a recent report by the Oxford Internet Institute on disinformation campaigning, which identified 70 major players. Some of them are states, for example, the Russian troll farm, a, a branch of the Russian government. There's also evidence, of course, of heavy Chinese involvement, but there's also evidence of corporate involvement and of wealthy individuals being involved. So my view as a sort of what matters ethically is that if you're playing a part in democratic life and civic life, you don't hide. You don't hide behind a hedge to throw stones. That's not part of the democratic repertoire, really. And so what would be a remedy would be to require the major players in this area, the customers of the tech companies, to be transparent about the money they have spent. Will it be feasible to achieve this? 
answer is I don't know on that. I do not think it can be done by requiring them to accept the disciplines of publishers in the print world because print publishing is a different ball game. And so for our listeners, the producers and users of statistics in government and the people who communicate statistics from government, I suppose there's an importance to lead by example to be transparent in their own use of statistics in their own communication and messaging, or perhaps a better phrase would be to your phrase, intelligible openness rather than simply transparent. Absolutely. That is the standard we should wish for and seek to achieve. But whether we can achieve it for ensure that others achieve it, which is after all what regulation would require, is as far as I can see still an open question. It is certainly the case that the digital companies do not wish to reveal who bought what from them to target whom with which messages. And that's what I think ideally we would wish to be in the public domain. Just to go to this issue about what can people in government who produce and use statistics do, uh, I'd like to use an analogy from, from economic history, which is the analogy which has become known as Gresham's Law. And it's a law about what happens when uh, scurrilous people debase a currency. They take a coin and they kind of mix in some dodgy alloy with it and they lower its its value. So what economists have noticed is that what that tends to do is that the bad coins drive out the good because people no longer know what to trust. They kind of lose their sense of being able to discern and distinguish. What's the solution to that? Well, one solution is to have, you know, lots of kind of, uh, you know, police enforcers who go around kind of trying to close down debasing activities, you know, backstreet counterfeiters. But actually a much better remedy is to equip people to be able to tell so, so that they can tell more quickly themselves and by people, the people who use the money, that whether a coin is, is dodgy or good. And if you equip people like that, what actually happens is it flips on its head and the good money, the money that people can trust and have confidence in because they can tell, drives out the bad. And there's no point in counterfeiting because people spot the counterfeit more quickly. And I think that's a really good analogy for this world, that, that everything that we're about is enabling people who use statistics and produce statistics on government to allow their good work to shine out because it's got this openness, it's got this transparency, this accessibility, it's got this value and this quality, and then to work with many other actors, including the Royal Statistical Society, to enable citizens to be uh, more confident in making those choices as to what's what's good and what's bad. I think that's the answer rather than kind of lots of heavy-handed kind of enforcers metaphorically going around to backstreet counterfeiters and trying to put them out of business. Equip people with the tools to spot what shines out as being good and that's what the National Statistics designation is all about. Thank you very much all of you for your time. Well we're back at CSW Towers now Suze, I thought that analogy from Ed at the end was really interesting. Yeah, I thought it was a really good one. Another theme that was discussed in the day was how do we tackle disinformation without amplifying the misinformation that's being used? And so I think this approach of rather than stamping down on the lies or the disinformation, we actually just try to amplify what is true and make it easier for people to tell what is true has to be a really positive approach. How would that work, though? Would everything that's true have a kind of blue tick by it, like on Twitter? Or <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, there's obviously there's the official statistics designation and the national statistics designation. I know they're going to be doing some work next year about how those are understood in the public discourse. Clearly, most people aren't really aware that there is such a thing and they wouldn't know how to check whether a statistic being used is, is real. 
one thing that was discussed at the day was obviously around education. Can we make people more statistically literate? Can we give people sort of civics education to help them sift what's true and what's not? As you probably heard from what Baroness O'Neill was saying, there's a lot of challenges in how we would go about making these changes when the digital world is already so far ahead and so difficult to regulate. But it seems to me the the best way to do it. So even if it's hard now to work out how, I'm sure that we have in the civil service and in our public life some great minds who can think about the right ways to do that. And the conference overall was really encouraging, actually, in that it was interesting showcase of the work that OSR does and of the passion and dedication of people working in statistics, not just there, but all across government. Other bodies were there, like the Advertising Standards Agency. Lots of people really committed to not only using statistics well for the public good, but building confidence and trust in what is being said by people in public life. And we've seen an example from the last few weeks of the government adverts for universal credit being banned after the Advertising Standards Agency got in touch. Yeah, and they mentioned that at the conference and you know, the, the feeling was actually it's a bit of an own goal. Like It's really important that government is really leading by example and being crystal clear about the stats it's using being correctly used. So that's the job that OSR has, is trying to get that culture of using statistics correctly right the way across government. One other thing that was discussed, OSR actually, going back to the currency analogy, when they correct a misuse of statistics, they try not to repeat the false claim that was made. They don't want to amplify, so for example, the 350 million on the side of a bus. When they wrote to Johnson calling that out they didn't repeat it because they don't want to keep that figure in the public discourse so they're they're already starting to think about how how do you basically focus on good what is good what is true and amplifying that correcting things when they go wrong but not turning the conversation around to the misuse well good luck to them That's it for this week but before we go we've just got time to decode some gems of Whitehallies disappointed used by members of the senior civil service to express the view that a particular junior official is quite possibly the most incompetent person they have ever come across. Surprised? Another classic senior civil service understatement, signifying horror, disgust and fury. Concerned. Somewhere in Whitehall, a senior official is about to go ballistic. It's one step away from the apocalypse of deep concern. Thank you for listening to the Civil Service World podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and get in touch if there's anything you can think of that we should cover in future. You can contact us through our Twitter handle at CSW News.